0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners that way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work yourself through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and 2 Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, where Paul encourages, mentors, and instructs these young leaders in how to minister to leaders and lay people in local churches. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. In the previous segment, we finished 2 Timothy 2, and now we move into 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. So a very rough passage. It opens with the prophecy in verse 1, there will be terrible times in the last days. The Greek term for terrible here means dangerous, menacing, and violent, as in wild animals of a certain type or wild seas. It does allow for a spectrum of danger, but the possibility of grave danger the term is used in the New Testament, most notably in Matthew eight twenty-eight, to describe the garrison demoniac. So if you can picture that, that's the adjective that Paul is using here. Last days is a phrase that gets a lot of play in our day, but it's defined right then and more broadly as the church age. And so this certainly speaks to eschatology and our view of the end times. I've talked about this at great length on the word diet in my study of the book of Revelation given standard biblical language, this is certainly a reference to at least the church age, although perhaps maybe the very end of time as well. A couple of notable sites here, Acts two seventeen. in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see dreams, your old men will dream dreams. And so there, Peter is quoting Joel in a prophecy about the last days, and it's a clear reference to Pentecost, and what will become later known as the Church Age. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So the last days, again, are post-Christ, The heart of the passage is his injunction, his exhortation, to shun such people, and then he defines them throughout the passage, ranging from verses 2 through 9, as terrible people, a small group of people within the church, and in particular the false teachers that he's talking about in verses 6 through 8. So terrible times in verse 1, and then he goes on to describe these terrible people, He does conclude the passage with optimism about their limited impact. In verse 9, they will not get very far because their folly will be clear to everyone. It's not clear why he's optimistic in this case. In 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25, he had noted that the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them in the same way good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. And so sometimes it is easier to see things in others really throughout the pastoral epistles he's been going back and forth about character and reputation who we are and what we're known for and the probability that there's some sort of gap there he's also talking about growth that we should be getting stronger and better in our faith as we walk with jesus and that would help us be understood as who we are in christ rather than a false teacher who presumably does not grow very much. So Paul here is talking about public versus private, character and reputation, what's seen versus unseen. In any case, Paul is clearly concerned about the dangers of an internal attack rather than an external attack, and this implies a need for us to be prepared for such things and to practice discernment. Matthew 13, Christ talks about the parable of the weeds. It's difficult to tell the difference between the good and the bad, the wheat and the chaff, and Paul obviously here is talking about the need to deal with such things quite strongly. The language here is reminiscent of the end of 1 Corinthians 5. In verses 2 through 4, he provides a lengthy and exhausting, but not exhaustive, and colorful list of 19 character flaws and sins. Let's start by noting the bookends, what the list begins with and ends with, and it's really, in essence, reversing the two great commandments Or in some, it's selfishness and pride. Using Paul's words here and summarizing it, we'd say it's all about bad love. Verse 2 opens with lovers of themselves. The Greek word here is philautos, phil as in love, and autos, themselves. And of course, you're supposed to be loving others. It also mentions lovers of money, phil arguros. And again, the word phil or the phrase phil pops in here. Remember that he had warned us about that in a verse that has become famous for our time, First Timothy 6.10. In verse 4, he talks about that they'd loved pleasure. And all this is in contrast to what they should be loving. In verse 3, the good, afil agathos, and this is a reference to loving things or people, and they're lacking that. In terms of what is good, Titus 3.8 is helpful. Be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But these people are not doing that. And then the passage ends with rather than God. So they're loving themselves, money, pleasure, rather than the good and loving God. It's all about me rather than the Lord and others. Now if you look at the list, the people that he's critiquing are missing some things and they have other things that you'd hope they would do without. The list opens with boastful and proud. Barclay spends a lot of time on these terms. On the first term, he notes that the Greeks spent a lot of time using this word to describe quack doctors that were all talk, they would make these grand claims but there's no walk there. There's no deliverable goods. In Texas, we might use the phrase, all hat, no cattle. And then, of course, the latter phrase, to be proud or arrogant, is terrible stuff. First Peter 5, 5, in the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. To distinguish between the two words, Barclay says the former is more about external bluster and the latter is more of an internal or heart issue, but there's an obvious Venn diagram overlap between the two as well. The third follows naturally from that to be abusive and it's quick to insult God or man. Greek word here is blasphemia, which is usually used to talk about insulting God, but the word can be more broadly used to describe insulting others. As Barclay notes, pride always begets insult, disregard of God, contempt of men. Then we get into a list that just starts to run. All of them have the prefix a in front of them, which means not. And so it's a staccato style here that Paul gives, not this, not this, not this, not this, that the English translations often are missing. But he does this for eight of the next nine, to be disobedient to their parents. The fifth commandment is in mind here and the social problems that would come with this. They're ungrateful. Akaristo is the Greek word here. Kar is where we get the words joy, gift, and grace. They have no joy, gift, or grace. They're unholy. Barclay says this word means to offend the unwritten laws and the fundamental decencies of life. The things that are just basic are things that they are blowing off. They're without love, a storgos, storgos, storge is the family version of love that the Greeks would talk about. So they don't even have natural family affiliations. Unforgiving, this is aspondos, and this is to break or to be unwilling to make a truce or an agreement. And then the one that does not have a as a prefix in front of it within this middle part of the list is slanderous, which is diabolos, which is the word used often for the devil. Barclay notes that folks who would never steal objects can sometimes delight in stealing someone's reputation. And then he quotes Shakespeare, he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. A difficult sin to recover from when someone has hit you with it. It's a terrible thing to do to slander. We need to be careful with our tongues. Paul continues without self-control. Brutal. Again, this is numeros, So non-human, like a wild beast. Treacherous or scheming. Rash. So they're quick and reflexive to move into these sorts of evils. And then finishes this part of the list with conceited, which is literally swollen-headed reminiscent, I think, of Romans 1 in this passage, the role of pride in the long list of sins that Paul provides there that stem from the pride. Here we have the same sort of thing. Pride has gotten them into all kinds of trouble, and it's causing all kinds of damage. And then late in verse 4, wrapping up the list, lovers of pleasure rather than God, and then he moves into a great and powerful phrase in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power He'll revisit this idea in Titus 1.16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. It's a very strong language that Paul uses for this concept. They claim something, but their actions deny it. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. If you've read Matthew Henry, one of my favorite commentaries, at least early in my studying, It's a favorite phrase of his. He keeps bringing it up over and over again to deal with various problems within our faith. For example, legalism, self-righteousness, relying on ritual and religion. And so you look at passages like Isaiah 1, 10 through 17, where the Israelites are doing all the ritual stuff, but they're not doing the following God part of it. They've got the rituals down, but God's not interested in that because they're not practicing justice and they're not following the Lord. Or think of the pharisees for example matthew 23 where christ rips them for having a form of the religion but denying its power in paul's writing i think 2 corinthians 11 12 through 14 is most useful here i will keep on doing what i am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about for such things are false apostles deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of christ And no wonder for satan himself masquerades as an angel of light one last thing to note before we move on there are those in our circles who will list off this sort of thing to describe the world but just to make clear paul is talking about those in the church particularly leaders who have gone astray and are leading others astray so the critique of the church is always stronger than the world if you don't find yourself doing that then you don't have your biblical priorities correct all right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, its Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we did 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, the terrible times in verse 1, and then the bulk of his description of the terrible people, these leaders, false teachers who were causing so much trouble, in verses 2 through 5. That takes us to verses 6 through 9. As Paul continues his description of them, "...they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected." They will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So we've already talked in the previous segment about his optimistic assessment of how little they would be able to accomplish in verse 9, and we wrestled with that already. So we do want to talk about verses 6 through 8, though, and the other bits of the description here, which are fascinating. Verse 6 opens with, "...that they worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women." certainly reminiscent of Genesis 3, where the devil is able to take advantage of Eve's naivete, lack of faith, in addition to pride and other flaws, and the fact that her husband's standing there like a dope in Genesis 3, verse 6, and not intervening. And so, we have a similar sort of sin here. We have, in essence, the devil taking advantage of women, while men are not doing what they can as leaders in their home, or in this case, in the church to take care of the women, to take care of those who are relatively vulnerable against those who are more powerful. Barclay points to the contemporary context and notes that the Christian emancipation of women inevitably brought its own problems, using their new liberty, false teachers who were quick to take advantage. And so Christianity did a ton for women, brought them freedom that they did not have under Judaism and in the existing cultures, certainly Greek and Roman influences, and Christianity freed them from much of that. But with freedom comes responsibilities and more difficult choices in some interesting ways. And so these leaders were able to step in and take advantage of that newfound freedom that they had. These were apparently secret attacks on the most vulnerable in the church, probably preying on the single women and or perhaps the wives in non-Christian households, or maybe wives with Christian husbands who weren't taking care of their business, again, very much like Adam in the garden. But the other feature of this passage is that they're working on particular types of women, working on them, working with them. And some interesting language here, later in verse six, they were loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. And then in verse seven, they're always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, so when I read a passage like this, it sure seems like he's talking about the teachers, but in the translations and the commentators say that he's talking about the women here, which is interesting for a few reasons. We have some interesting combinations at play here. First of all, he's blaming both parties. That's certainly the false teachers are to blame, but also the women. And in cases of Christian husbands, the husbands are also to blame here. It takes two to party. If the women were in good shape and knew the counterfeits and could fend off the false teachers, they should be doing that. But they're participating in this apparently. So Paul has uh, some blame for both sides of the equation. Also in context, it's apparently connected back to chapter 3, verse 5, that we're talking about something that has a form of godliness but denies its power. Again, not just the false teachers, but the women and their approach to spirituality learning, discipleship, and the like. It looks like the real thing. They seem to be studying, but ultimately they're denying its power. As to the combination in verses 6 and 7, you've got evil desires and then a failure to acknowledge the truth. Paul here is talking about both moral and intellectual angles, and both of them are important. You can't have the moral without the intellectual, can't have the intellectual without the moral, within a Christian, well-developed worldview, thought, theology, practice, etc., cetera. You need both of them. Romans 12.1 talks about being transformed by your mind and not being conformed to the world. And so there's an intellectual piece to this, and there's a moral piece that naturally should extend from that. So here, apparently, we have intellectual curiosity without moral integrity and seriousness interested in the ideas, which would be part of Greek culture, but not willing to follow that up and do what's supposed to be done with what you are learning. Matthew Henry, pointing to verses six and seven, says, a foolish head and a filthy heart make people an easy prey for seducers. And that seems to be what Paul is describing here. Or we could think of this as the pursuit of knowledge, but not wisdom, which is the application of knowledge through experience here, walking with Christ, and particular, obedience. Knowledge without obedience is a waste of time. This is not trashing studying per se. Studying is wonderful. Learning about God is wonderful. Studying the scriptures is wonderful. But if it's not backed up with a pursuit of wisdom and a desire for obedience, then ultimately it does cause more damage than one would hope and maybe even more damage than not having the knowledge in the first place. You can be into ideas and study, but not into obedience and discipline. Think of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 talks about teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And many churches don't bother with the everything I've commanded you. They stop short of conversion. They have a light approach to discipleship. But sometimes the discipleship is learning and educational only. The Great Commission is teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so if those are not together in tandem, then it's similar to what we see here in verses 6 and 7. A couple passages come to mind here, Ephesians 4.14, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And Paul could be talking about exactly the situation that he's describing here. And Ephesians 4.14, remember, is in the great passage 11 through 16 of Ephesians 4 that describes maybe what is the top priority of the church, which is to train up their people in a rigorous form of discipleship. The focus in verse 14 is dealing with exactly what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy 3, that without this, you're going to be an infant. You're going to be tossed back and forth by the waves. You're going to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching And you're going to be subject to the cunning and craftiness of people like the false teachers that he's critiquing and condemning here in 2 Timothy 3 with their deceitful scheming. They're trying to mess with you, and you're not in a position to handle them because you've not been discipled appropriately. James 1 6 through 8 is also excellent on this. But when you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind that person should not expect to receive anything from the lord such a person is double minded and unstable in all they do in a nutshell this is the double minded man and or woman in this case i guess but they they're probably decent people they go to church on sunday they're involved in study they seem solid but at the root of it they're double-minded. They have various pursuits that they're after. They're learning, but it doesn't follow up in terms of morality and obedience. They're unstable in all they do. They're blown and tossed by the wind. They're like the waves of the sea. They believe, they doubt, they go back and forth. They look earnest. They look like they're studying. They look like they're working hard on the faith, but it's not teamed up with an earnestness to obey, to follow, to turn knowledge into wisdom, and so on. For the church, I think, The implication here is that we have false teachers in the church, we have discipleship in the world through the culture, and there are negative forms of discipleship that must be countered by positive discipleship that is rigorous, purposeful, and so on. And if we fail to do this as church leaders and as churches, and if the people in the congregation don't get involved with that, it's a huge sin of omission. We're going to be discipled. That's not interesting question is, what are we being discipled by and to? If it's the world, if it's false teachers, it's going to cause tons of damage. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here in verses 6 through 8. Now, in verse 8, he provides a historical example, Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses and the truth. Now it's interesting because in Exodus 7 and 8, the passage that's clearly in mind here where the magicians go up against Moses and Aaron, the rod of God and God himself in their battle with Pharaoh, they're not named in that text. So these names come from Jewish tradition, but these are usually seen to be the magicians that are not named in Exodus 7 and 8. Maybe these are the leaders of those. In verse 13 of 2 Timothy 3, he'll later call them imposters. So the word is translated either way, but they're false. They're not real. They don't really tap into the divine power or have divine knowledge, but they sure look like it. And so they take advantage, they gain control over people who are gullible. And that's the comparison that Paul makes here. It also might refer to counterfeit miracles. He seems to be concerned about that off and on. Certainly in the early church, that was a concern. But specifically, we know that he is talking about men of depraved minds, consider First Timothy six five, who are here rejected. They're not part of the true faith. One last thought that's pretty cool here is implicitly Paul is comparing himself to Moses by using this example. And he is like Moses. He is someone to follow. He is dealing with difficult opponents. He's someone who loved God and his people. He's going to bat for the people of God through Timothy going to battle with these false teachers. And we need to do the same thing to avoid negative discipleship with false teachers in the world and to embrace true discipleship within the church. May we have the passion of Paul in these matters. Time to take a break, stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous two segments, we did 2 Timothy 3 verses one through nine, and that takes us to verses 10 through 13. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." So in verse 10 and into verse 11, we might call this character and curriculum. Paul starts off with a reminder to know about, which can also be translated be a disciple of, literally follow alongside his example, what he had done. This term implies physical, mental, and spiritual. So it's a very holistic, comprehensive term. Barclay describes the Greek word here as including the unwavering loyalty of the true comrade, the full understanding of the true scholar, and the complete obedience of the dedicated servant. This isn't just sitting under a teacher or a preacher. It's something much deeper than that, much fuller than that. And then he gets specific, a a very long list here, my teaching, my way of life, so it's not just teaching, my purpose, so he's speaking of intentionality being directed in that way of life, faith, what he's driven by and driven for, patience, the term here is with people, love, of course this is the Greek agape, the unconditional love of Christ and the love we extend to others. Endurance, this is through events. So patience with people, endurance through events. This is absolutely huge. You can be successful in the Christian walk for a while, but you got to persevere. Hebrews 10, 36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then he mentions persecutions and sufferings, including the physical, social, and verbal abuse that Timothy would have known about in his home region in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. These events are described off and on throughout Acts 13 and 14. Paul also gives a laundry list of the troubles that he faced in his ministry in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 33, and a nice summary verse is Galatians six seventeen. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And Paul always rooted his sufferings and persecutions in what his Savior had gone through. Now, let's think about the context of verses 10 and 11. It's another long list. And so, there's a clear contrast with what happened in verses 1 through 9, that longer list of character flaws, selfish agendas, and self-indulgent lives. Notice the use of they. And you, me, my, the different pronouns here of the false teachers and their followers. Very self-centered versus the Christ-centered focus that Paul went through. Living for others, living for God. And Paul here is putting forward a curriculum for discipleship. And notice that when we think of curriculum, we think always in terms of teaching. And we jump quickly to sound doctrine. And that's certainly a big part of what this is. But it's not just that. He mentions the teaching, but it's not just that. It's not just being in a study. It's all the other things that Paul talks about. It's a way of life that stems from the teaching. It's not study for its own purpose, but for the gospel and kingdom purposes that God has given us work to do. It's driven by faith. It's rooted in patience and love. It pursues the long run and perseveres into the long run, through endurance, and despite persecutions and suffering. So it's a curriculum for discipleship, but it's a lot more than book learning. It extends, again, to the same things that we're missing in verses 1 through 9, wisdom, experience, love, caring for others, and the like. The other thing to note here is that Paul is pointing to himself as an example to follow. He does this a handful of places, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Philippians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, And it always sort of bugs you when you read that. Follow my example? Where's the humility here? But Paul is only saying, follow my example, only insofar as I follow Christ. And in that, he's right on the nose. Do we have the sort of life that we can encourage other people to emulate, if not in the particulars, at least in the general approach? The Spirit-driven life, our purpose, our faith, our patience, love, endurance— how we deal with difficulties in life. We should be able to point to our own lives as an example to others. He's not bragging about himself, but his life and his sufferings are an objective evidence of the gospel he preached. And his life was supported by his teaching. Matthew Henry says he did not pull down by his living what he built up by his preaching. And so it's both the preaching and the living that Paul is talking about. And we should have the same combination in our own lives. When he says it's my purpose, he's not just talking about his character, but his motivation, his goals, his vision, and what Timothy must have to succeed. These are not optional. You cannot succeed in the kingdom without the sort of things that Paul is talking about here. And so to follow that example is completely legitimate and the sort of thing we should be seeking to emulate as we follow Paul in his example for us. Now, Paul has talked about persecution and sufferings. He continues to run with that idea here, but says at the end of verse 11, Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Looking back, his emphasis is on the rescue rather than the plight. I think when we look at our own difficulties, it's the same thing. We talk about our plight only to talk about the redemption of those circumstances, the rescue that we've experienced, what the Lord is doing with that. And so if we get rescued, great. If we don't, that's fine, too. We're heading to heaven. But the rescue is the thing to focus on, not the victimhood, not the pain, not the suffering. You talk about the suffering only insofar as it gets you to the rescue. So Paul is not talking about easy living. In fact, he generalizes it then in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is a prevalent theme in the Gospels, in the writing of Paul, and in Peter, for example, 1 Peter 4.12. Now, there are ways to avoid this. You can escape persecution through withdrawal and isolation, that you're not in the world. Or you can assimilate and compromise. You can be of the world. But if you're going to be in the world and not of the world, then difficulties are going to come your way. Some people are more on the one-talent side of this. In America, we don't have to deal with very much, maybe a little bit more than, say, a decade ago. But we're one-talent Christians in this regard. If you're in Pakistan or India, uh, many other countries where Muslims dominate, right? You may be a ten-talent Christian in this regard, but who struggled in the parable of talents? It's the one who had one talent, And so it is the case with us. When we have little problems, relatively speaking, how well do we handle them? In contrast, verse 13, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Again, the process here is something to avoid. Who would want to go from bad to worse? Who would want to go from deceiving to actually being deceived? It's not a good reason to stay in league with the truth. The process is not something that is going to be any fun to be a part of. Bad to worse, ironically, is literally advancing further. They're getting better at getting worse. And then imposters, the word here is literally magicians, as I mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 8. It's also possible they were returning back to their Ephesian heritage. They had had some of this in Acts 19, verses 18 and 19. So maybe Paul is taking a sideways poke at that. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 13. Now we turn to verses 14 through 17, where Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So verse 14 starts with, but as for you... And this introduction is Paul emphatically calling Timothy to a distinctive lifestyle and approach to ministry. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is. Is good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so there's the matter of a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. You can test and approve what God's will is, but you cannot conform to the pattern of this world, have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what Paul has been talking about throughout First and 2 Timothy. In the most recent passage, verses 10-13, through 13, he used himself as an example to follow. And in contrast, he talked about the false teachers and the world earlier in chapter 3 that he's to be distinct from. For John Stott, this is actually the key phrase in this book, but as for you, it appears in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 5. Interestingly, in its phrase-by-phrase approach, the NIV translates it differently each time. And so it obscures Stott's point that this phrase is being used over and over by Paul to get Timothy's attention to call him to distinctiveness. He also uses the phrase in 1 Timothy 6.11 and in Titus 2.1. Now, what is the charge here? Verse 14 continues to continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. That's interesting to me that it's something that you have to continue. It's not enough to learn it. You must apply it and persevere in it. In John 8, 31 and 32, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 32 is famous, but verse 31, Jesus talks about holding to the teachings. There's a long-term aspect of this that is important. You learn and then you continue in it, applying and persevering in it. And then another level on top of that is to become convinced of it, Again, there's a difference between learning something and being convinced of it. There's a second level sort of wrestling. Think of the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. One commentator said, we hold the first, the second holds us. When we're convinced of something, it has a hold of us in a way that's different than merely learning it. And so there's a great need for us to become more convinced of Christian faith, theology, and the like Our life and our apologetics need to deepen over time mere emotion, our parents' faith, mere ritual. These are not enough. Paul continues and roots it in two factors later in verse 14, because you know those from whom you learned it. Certainly that's Paul, given the context he's been talking about this at great length, for example, in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 2, verse 2. And likely his mother and grandmother are in view here as well. References earlier to this in chapter 1 verse 5 and chapter 3 verse 15, Stott observes Timothy must continue in what he has learned because he knows from whom he has learned it. But it's not just a who, it's a what, because you know what is in verse 15, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, his own experience directly with the Scriptures, walking with the Spirit and the like. It's not just following someone else's example, it's living it out in your own personal experience. So a couple things of interest here that it's consistent with the Holy Scriptures are and put on an equal footing with the teachings of Paul in verse 14. Second, notice that when he talks about the Holy Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's the only thing that had been codified into Scripture at this point. And so both of these are still relevant. The Old Testament is important to us, even though there's a temptation to jettison it and put it aside. It still has great relevance to us, as we've seen in the word diet uh, through many, many podcasts going back through the Old Testament. But there's also this equivalence with Paul's teaching. And, of course, that is eventually manifested with Paul's teaching becoming part of the New Testament Scripture. The phrase, how from infancy, is also important. Back to the familial impact, the good impression that Timothy's mother and grandmother had had on him. And it's from infancy. Judaism required teachings at the age of five, but their influence on Timothy goes well beyond that. P.H. Reardon talks about how the phrase here, Holy Scriptures, is literally the sacred grammar and he's got a nice article in Touchstone from July and August 2010 on this idea. And he makes two points that I want to reiterate here. The importance of transmitting and inheriting the faith. There is a level at which it is inherited and certainly a level at which it's transmitted. Our faith is not meant to be private or privatized. If you look at the book of Genesis, it's all about at one level the transmission of the faith from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the sons. And if you can't transmit the faith, it's not going to continue. If you can't get the family right, how can you get the nation right? And that's a big theme in Genesis as you move into Exodus. And the second point that Reardon makes is the idea of indoctrination and the word doctrine within that word. We indoctrinate people. And the idea here is taking possession of something in the heart, not merely the mind, and in all of this to make greater sense the world around us. Paul continues in verse 15 on the purpose of the scriptures, again, the Old Testament scriptures, it's worth noting, within justification, but especially sanctification, our walk with God. He says here, which are able to make you wise, the Greek term is sophizo, which literally means to live skillfully for salvation through faith in Christ. John Stott says the Old Testament foretells and foreshadows Jesus. The Gospels tell the story of his birth and life, his words and works, his death and resurrection. The Acts describe what he continued to do and teach through his chosen apostles. The epistles display the full glory of his person and work and apply to the life of the Christian and the Church, while the Revelation depicts Christ sharing the throne of God now and coming soon to consummate his salvation and judgment. How beautiful and powerful are the Old Testament and the New Testament Scriptures. Verse 16 starts with the origins of the Scriptures. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says that scripture is breathed or breathed, and we think of living things that are active when we think of something that has breath in it. Hebrews 4.12, "...for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart." But it's not just breathed or breathed, it's God-breathed. The Greek term here is theonustos. so you have God and breathed through the Spirit. And the Christian scriptures are fascinating in this regard. They have human writers, but they are inspired by God. And those writers are working from within their cultural, historical, and personal context. I often talk about God's provision and our participation, and that's what the scriptures are. In contrast to Islam and Mormonism, where the scriptures are transcribed by a human and are directly the Word of God, here we have a combination of divine and human that results in the Christian scriptures. It's also interesting that this is all in contrast to the Gnostic books and heresies that Paul is combating as he talks with Timothy. And going back to Genesis 3.1, one. Is that the doubts of the devil are often to go after god's word by way of comparison it's also interesting that the logos jesus is also fully human and fully divine fully god's provision and human participation and we can make mistakes here as well to diminish either his humanity or his deity and then finally all scripture so this implies the usefulness of studying all of it not just the new testament not just the gospels not just the letters of paul but the whole thing and so yeah there's a difference between reading and studying there's some that's more applicable than others but all of the word of god i can tell you from years and decades of studying and diving into it and just being amazed by the beauty and the power of the scriptures whether we're talking about leviticus or isaiah in the old testament or the range of things in the new testament let's say revelation Or what we're studying here with first and second timothy it is such an amazing thing that god has given us this resource and it's worth it to study all of it not just parts of it and again this includes the old testament and the new testament from what paul is saying right here first corinthians 2 13 this is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom but in words taught by the spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit taught words 2 Peter three fifteen and 16, Peter speaking of Paul, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Notice how Peter, in defending Paul, talks about the humanity of the letter. So it's both. It's human and it's divine. It's 100% God, 100% human. And then at the end of 16 into 17, you have the application of the scriptures within the process of sanctification. It's useful or profitable for teaching, speaking of doctrine, rebuking, the idea of conviction that he's talked about off and on in the pastoral epistles, correcting, he mentioned that in chapter 2, verse 25, And training The Greek word here is padia, which is used to teach children, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What a powerful phrase that is. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. But for every good work, Ephesians 2.10 follows Ephesians 2.8 and 9. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And here Paul's coming back to say, look, it's important that you're thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Spirit can empower and do anything, but it's better if you give him tools to work with through the process of walking with Christ, studying his scriptures and the like, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, its profitability follows from the fact that it comes from God. It's not just a great book in human terms, although it's certainly that, but it is God-breathed and it is profitable for all of these things given the impact and the influence of the Spirit of God to give us the Word of God. God's Word is described elsewhere using powerful and effective metaphors. For example, Jeremiah 23, 29 compares it to both fire and a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces it's compared to rain in isaiah 55:10 and 11 as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater so is my word that goes out from my mouth it will not return to me empty but will accomplish what i desire and achieve the purpose for which i sent it and it's also compared to a sword i've already read hebrews 4:12 the other citation here is ephesians 6:17 now, if you look at the list of four things, there's certainly knowledge that's being discussed here, but beyond that, certainly an emphasis on wisdom and application. It's not just creed, but conduct that Paul has in mind here. And so there's a Venn diagram relationship between these four categories, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. There's certainly overlap between the four And then finally the phrase thoroughly equipped. The Greek term here is exartizo, which means a completed document or a fully supplied and furnished boat. Look at the emphasis on all and every. The, The verse begins with all, all scripture is God breathed, and ends with for every good work. It is universally applicable and important, crucial to our walk with Christ. Now, in its context, the passage is referring specifically to leaders. Think of Timothy and his heavy responsibilities and the repeated charges that Paul has laid out. All of that is backed up with great equipment, fully supplied, fully furnished. But at least from other passages, it certainly speaks to God's goals for each of us. And the fact is, without God's word, we're taking a butter knife to a sword fight. Let's bring the sword that God has given us. When Kurt Sauter and I were developing discipleship curricula back in the day, we titled our first one Thoroughly Equipped, 21 months, studying five hours a week, getting together weekly to talk through what the Lord had shown you. A lighter version we put together later is called Getting Equipped. Or maybe you just need to get into the Word. and I would suggest the Word Diet, my book and literacy project, to get you started into the great Word of God. Our website is thoroughlyequipped.org. If you're listening to a podcast like this, you're probably already doing it, but what are you doing to help others get into the great word of God? Lord, may we be passionate about the scriptures and passing that along to others. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.